Good evening to the book of Acts tonight. Sunday evenings over the last several weeks now have been devoted to your suggested passages. Your favorite passages are just a passage you want to hear about and review. And the response has been greater than I anticipated. And I'm persuaded that good is being done. Interest is being generously expressed. And this is not a limited project, so you can still be a participant. Send me your passage through text or email or a paper note or verbal. If you do that verbally, you need to make sure I write that down. Tonight, if you would open with me to a well-known passage, Acts chapter 2. A lot is happening in this chapter that is so important to us. The universal church we belong to, it all started here, documented by Luke in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ into heaven, after the apostles were given the Holy Spirit to guide them into all the truth. The gospel was preached to a massive Jewish audience. Many Jewish people in town. Peter's sermon is recorded by Luke. And you'll notice as you read that sermon that Peter spoke very clearly about sin, the Savior, and the response necessary to receive salvation from the Savior. And people responded. They became the first group of Christians after Christ's resurrection. This was on the day of Pentecost when many Jews were gathered in the city. And I noted with you this morning from Acts 2 and verse 42 what they did after being baptized. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. Now tonight there's one verse that's been suggested for the focus of our attention. And in the larger attention that we pay to Acts chapter 2, we certainly cannot overlook this verse we're going to cover tonight. We cannot dismiss it because it is key to the point Peter was making in this sermon. I'll give that verse in just a moment, but first, well, you know what we need to do. We need to have before us all of Acts chapter 2. Then I'll go back and bring up that verse and we will deal with it, but listen please to this familiar passage we've heard so many times, but need to hear again. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation 
under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and uh, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the promise, I'm sorry, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts chapter 2. Before we get to that verse I've been asked to deal with, let's look at an overview of the chapter. And you can do it in a very simple outline format. Who, in terms of the audience... Jews who were in Jerusalem. Where did this occur? In Jerusalem, where Jesus told the apostles to start their work. And there were people there from many different places documented in verses 8 through 11. The preacher, the apostle Peter, according to verse 14, the subject, Jesus of Nazareth, who is described in verse 36 as both Lord and Christ. 
the instructed response, repent and be baptized, and the outcome, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What God had promised in the prophets was fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. And now, the message of salvation in Christ is being proclaimed. Our focus tonight is going to be on verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's our verse for study and application tonight. Now, I'm going to say this was Peter's conclusion. Every sermon needs to head somewhere. It needs to have a destination, a conclusion. Peter represented to the Jewish audience God's fulfillment of his plan through Christ as the anointed one who fulfilled the promises and prophecies of the coming Savior. He convicted the people of their sin. He calls upon them to respond. But here's the main theme of his sermon. Here's his conclusion. Know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let's engage in some analysis. Look with me at that little three word phrase. No far certain in the English Standard Version. If you have the NIV, be assured. If you have the King James, know assuredly. I'm using the English Standard Version and I like the way that's expressed. No far certain. Now, how could Peter ask these Jews in Jerusalem to know for certain. Let's talk about that. There were witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. There had been abundant signs and wonders God did through Christ, including the apostles speaking languages they had not learned. Languages the Holy Spirit gave to them, referred to here as tongues. Peter cited the prophecies that were fulfilled. So Peter doesn't just get up and say, here's what you need to know for certain. You need to know this assuredly. This is all in the context of evidence, witnesses, things that were clear in Jerusalem. God made available to them and ultimately for us, the evidence upon which we base our faith, that one can know for certain that Jesus is the Christ. Now what this phrase goes to is the nature of biblical faith. When we act on faith according to the scriptures, we're not playing the lottery. We're not guessing that maybe this could turn out to be correct. 
It isn't blind faith. It is faith based on all the evidence available provided by God that we have access through in this written documentation that is unlike any other written work anyone could read. And there's great comfort in that for us. I tell you, I'm not certain about so many things. The weather, my health, your health, unexpected tragedy, the future of this nation, world politics and war and international conflict. Are you certain about all that, how it's all going to turn out? I'm not certain about so many things. I really need to be certain about something. I need objective truth I can base my life on. That's what I have in this book. The reality of Christ's life, His death for us, His resurrection, all documented with the evidence. I can know for certain that He's coming again, as affirmed in Acts chapter 1. Our faith stands on the solid, credible foundation of God-given evidence. You know what I thought about as I developed this sermon? Back in Luke chapter 1, there is a phrase very similar to this. Know for certain. Back in Luke chapter 1, Luke says, as he begins the gospel of Luke, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty. See, there's the phrase. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Luke begins the same sort of way, talking about the resurrection of Christ and what Christ suffered by many proofs. This all rings true as connected to Peter's assertion in Acts 2.36 that know for certain Jesus is the one. There's another part of this captured by that phrase, God has made. Listen again. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. What happened when Jesus came? His teaching, his example, his good works, his atoning death, his resurrection, the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles. Man didn't make that happen. God did. So many things people are a part of religiously today are man-made. Man came up with it. The huge, powerful religious system of Catholicism 
was made and is perpetuated by man. The denominational complex, the network of community churches, the religious cults and organizations, man-made. Just following God's word has apparently not been sought out by so many people. People in their attempts at religion just find something that men came up with. Peter is affirming about the person and work of Christ and his church. God did this. God promised it. It is God-made, not man-made. When the apostles started preaching on Pentecost, they said, this is what God said that he would do when he spoke through men like Joel and David. This is of God. God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now, terminology is important in this. What do we make of this designation? Lord, it has such a simple definition. One, having authority. And this affirmation or designation has its foundation back in the book of Matthew in chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. You may remember this. I spoke about it a few weeks ago. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Peter heard this. Back in Matthew 28, Peter heard this, acted on this commission, and on Pentecost identified Jesus as Lord, one having authority. Now what does that mean? If I agree that Jesus is Lord, and Lord means one having authority, what do I need to do about that personally? I don't need to reason that out by myself. Turn with me to Luke 6, 46. Jesus has been made Lord by God, and in preaching the gospel, we identify Jesus as the Lord, one having authority. Now, what does that mean to me and to you? Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See, to call Jesus Lord is to acknowledge the follow-through of obedience that we need to embrace individually. Jesus has all authority and my response ought to be initially repentance and baptism followed by the obedient surrender of my life to Him. Selective, limited, convenient obedience is not obedience at all when measured by the text of Scripture. What about the other designation? Christ anointed one. In Old Testament terms, it meant, first of all, selected. 
and then you move higher, assigned by God, selected, assigned by God to be king, and that means to take the rule, to govern. It all connects to authority, doesn't it? It is official. God has designated him as Lord and Christ. Jesus has been, it could be said, coronated at the right hand of God, taking office on high, the king over his kingdom. Remember, God made all of this happen. And again, to use the name Lord, or to use the name Christ, carries with it the personal obligation to submit to his rule. What did the unbelieving Jews do to the one God made Lord and Christ? They crucified him. Matthew 27, 26 says he was handed over or delivered to be crucified by the hostile Jewish unbelievers. Matthew 27, 35 says when they had crucified him. Now, this becomes the primary example in Acts 2 of the sin of the people. Notice with me in Acts 2 that we read verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It is, for believers, emotionally difficult to try and picture that crucifixion scene. Stripped of clothing, beaten, goaded as he was marched to the place of crucifixion, execution, a parade of hostility and violence surrounding him, nailed to a piece of lumber to suffer and wait for death. Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched death of all. How could we have any other attitude about that? but to love him for what he endured for us to be able to come out of sin and be forgiven and live right and embrace faith and its hope. This really ought to be our conviction. May this be our conviction and may we act out in our lives, the love we have for him who died for us, but God raised him from the dead, making him both Lord and Christ. With all the instructed responses delivered by the apostles of Christ, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain Know for certain that God has made him 
both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. May, may we take that assurance and that certainty from God with us into the week and into the rest of our lives. Let's be standing as we sing. Oh, no, no.